Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 20. And if not, that's all right. You can read along on the screens with us today. But we are continuing our series called Rescued and Redeemed. We are going through the book of Exodus, and we are looking at the great epic story of how God has rescued his people out of slavery and now has redeemed, has redeemed them and is leading them through a wilderness to a better land. But they're going to spend the rest of their time in that wilderness in the rest of this book known as Exodus. Today, we're going to see what happens next as they are camped at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. So before we get into that, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it today. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for, for just who you are, for allowing us to be a part of your family known as the church, God, the body of Christ. I thank you, Jesus, that we can come here and worship, that we can be together and learn about who you are and study the Bible together. That is truly an amazing thing that we get to do. So Lord, let us not take it for granted even now. I pray that your word would just jump off the pages of these scriptures into our hearts. Holy Spirit, use your word to truly penetrate our hearts and draw us closer to you in love and grace. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to love each other. Show us how to do that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, most of us grow up not being too fond of rules. When you're a kid, you hate rules, right? Rules keep you from doing what you want to do, right? Rules are no fun, right? Rules keep you in line and and make you have to say no to all the fun things that you want to do. See, that's the mentality, right, that we grow up with as kids that we're kind of trained to believe from an early age, at least That's how it seems to be, and I think that's part of our human nature. Our human nature is that, what? We want to be authoritative over our own lives. We don't want to answer to anyone else. We don't want to answer to God. We don't want to answer to our parents growing up. We want to make or call the shots for ourselves. And so rules and laws, as we grow up, seem to be a burden. In fact, some of you uh, some of you may not love all the laws that you have to obey at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, right? Even here at church, we have a set of bylaws, we call them, that help govern who we are and how we operate. What do all these rules and laws really mean? What, what is their function? What is their purpose? Well, one function is to show us what should be happening in our society, right? If we operate according to the laws, again, I'm not saying that you have to love them or agree with them, but in theory, if we operate according to the set of laws that we have agreed upon as a people, right, then that should lead us to see a flourishing society, a flourishing community. Well, though we may not agree with all of the man-made laws in our society today, we today are going to see some different kinds of laws the laws of God himself. We're going to begin today looking at what the Old Testament will refer to in the rest of Exodus as the law, the law of God, that God himself, these rules, these commands specifically today, that he gave to his people at Israel or to his people Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, last week, we saw this powerful display of the holiness of God. 
If you were here last week, you saw, we saw that God himself came down to Mount Sinai to meet with his people. So what did they do? They prepared themselves for this encounter. And now this amazing and holy God is in their presence on Mount Sinai. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to speak. Our God is not a silent God. Our God is one who speaks. He spoke the universe into existence and he will speak directly to and audibly to his people there at Mount Sinai in a very unprecedented, special way. Today we're going to see, as God speaks, that he is perfect, he is holy, and you know what he demands from his followers, from his people? He demands holiness. So today we're looking at what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, when you think of the Ten Commandments, I don't know, maybe you think of Charlton Heston, Right? Maybe you think of, if you grew up in church, you would probably think of memorizing them perhaps as a child in Sunday school or something like that. Or maybe the Ten Commandments are just something that may or may not be that you've seen out in the world somewhere, right? Or maybe this is all fresh and new to you. But all of us coming together today, we're going to look at these Ten Commandments in really two different sections. You can, con- you can actually divide them into two categories. Commandments one through four teach us how to love God. Commandments 5 through 10 teach us how to love people. These are God's rules, right? His rules for a society to flourish and truly love God and truly love each other. These 10 commands operate as a set of guiding principles to that end. So today we're going to see, we're going to look at these two sections in two different ways. First, I want us to read through these commandments and talk about them as they were originally intended for Israel in their context. And then we're going to discuss what we can learn today in today's modern society from these commands. All right? So let's go. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. The whole uh, chapter there is what we're going to do. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right, so we'll stop right there. So God is reminding Israel that they are already his, right? They don't have to obey these rules to convince God to adopt them or to love them. No, they already belong to God. He purchased them, all right? So they're not going anywhere. He is their God. That's already true. The commands that he's about to give them, right, they're not a means for them to earn his love. He's already saved them. So these commands are going to be how they can demonstrate that they do belong to God. You see the difference there? They're not obeying these commands. God's not giving them and saying, all right, this is your test. And if you could keep all these 10 commandments, I might just love you, right? I might just take you into heaven with me. That is not it at all. God is giving them these commands as a perfect and holy God to show how they can demonstrate that they do belong to God already and to each other. So before we read the first two commands, think about, think about their experience up until this point. They have only known what it's, be, what it's like, right? The Israelites, they've only known what it's like to be immersed in a religious, pluralistic culture, right? They, they grew up in Egypt, every single one of them. They were there for over 400 years, so every person standing at the foot of this mountain, seeing a holy God before them, 
only knows what it's like to grow up in a pluralistic religious culture where there are, and what I mean by that is, there's false gods everywhere. Think back to even just images you've seen of ancient Egypt. What do you see? You see lots of statues. You see lots of their false gods, right? That many of them resemble animals and have animal heads and all these things. That's the only world that every grandpa and every grandchild knew standing there in this wilderness, in this desert. This is the first time they've ever lived outside of that context. And so it makes sense then that God would want to teach them and train them up front early on in their walk with him what it's going to look like to abandon those false idols, to get rid of those things, and to worship him and him alone. Because here's the thing. Not only are they coming out of that context, you know what they're heading towards? Eventually, when they get into Canaan, which is the promised land that God said he would bring his people to, guess what's going to be there? More statues, more idols, more false gods, more pagan culture. It's going to be up to them if they are going to devote their hearts fully and only exclusively to the one true God. Not that different than today's culture, would you say? It may not be so much statues, but it's other things. Things that capture our hearts and our attentions. But listen to this. What must they understand? The Israelites, they must wholly devote themselves exclusively to the one true God. So then commands number one and two in in light of that context make perfect sense, right? Look at verse three. This is command number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Command number two, verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love Thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God is being very clear. I know that you've come out of that situation, that culture around you, but that's not anymore. You must fully devote yourselves to me, God says, and that will bring blessings in your life. But if you don't, if you give in to the culture and you give in and start worshiping and giving your heart to the things of this world, Iniquity, right? There's going to be punishment for that. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be literal consequences for that. So God sets that, the tone up front in the first two commands. We see that. Now, let's keep going. Command number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does that mean? And normally we think that that means just maybe swearing with God's name, and it definitely could include that, yes. But, but it's more than that. T.D. Alexander, a theologian, says about this specific command, he says, this prohibits any use of the divine name that would detract from how God is perceived. The Israelites must exercise extreme caution when talking about God or invoking his name, especially when using God's name in order to promote their own agenda. So don't, don't use God, don't use his name to promote you. And now lastly, when it comes to how the Israelites must love and honor God, command number four instructs them that keeping a day for rest is going to show that they do trust in the one true God, that they trust in his provision for their lives. 
They don't have to work every day. They're not the ones earning salvation. God is going to earn the salvation for them. So they need to remember, they need to set aside a day to remember that, to focus on the goodness of God and not how good or great they can work and they can be. They need to remember the instruction about the quail and the manna that God provided for them just a few chapters before. Remember that? They got out into the wilderness. They didn't have anything to eat. And the Lord said, you know what? I'm going to provide for you. On the sixth day, I want you to collect twice as much food. I'm going to give you twice as much on the sixth day so that on the seventh day, you can demonstrate that you trust me. But you know that I'm the one providing for you. And as hard as you may work and as good as some of that may be, I'm the one that's going to provide. Ultimately, it's me. That's what God is teaching them. Look at this then. So that brings us to this command. Number eight, or verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in, who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Commands one through four teach us how to love God, how to really put him at the forefront of our lives and our hearts. Now, switching gears, God also wants us to love other people. He wanted the Israelites to love each other. Look at this. How do you do that? Command number five, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Command number six deals with respecting human life and the image of God and other people. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Command number seven deals with being faithful to your spouse. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Commands number eight and nine both deal with truthfulness and not wronging someone else maliciously. Look at this, verse 15, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And lastly, the last command, number 10, tells us that we must be content with what God has given us. Jealousy gets us nowhere. Jealousy is rooted in pride, and it will destroy our relationships. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is, in, that is your neighbor's. See, the Lord is teaching his people. Am I going to be enough for you Am I really going to be enough for you? And can you express that I am enough for you by the way you treat others? Verse 18, I love the way that this is all summarized in verses 18 through 21. Let's read those. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Do you see that they realize the seriousness of the moment? They are seeing something they've never seen before. I mean, they have seen God do great things, but they have not seen God himself. His holiness and his majesty come down before them. The smoke, the fire, the thunder, the lightning, the sounding of the trumpet. They're afraid, and wouldn't you be? 
We talked about a lot, that a lot last week, so I don't want to get into all that again. But the point is, they are taking holiness seriously as they should. Verse 20, but Moses assures them, Moses said to the people, do not fear. Yes, our God is holy, and yes, this is a scary, frightening moment, but do not fear. Why? Because for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. It's not a spooky kind of fear. It's not a jump out kind of fear. It's a reverent awe and respect of a holy God. That's what that word fear means. So that you may fear him, that you may respect his holiness and these rules. And if you really do respect them and you respect who he is and you worship him alone, then guess what? It will keep you from sinning and breaking these rules. Verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Man, what a, what a fascinating moment in world history when God himself came down to give his people at the time, just the Israelites, these rules, these commands. That was a long time ago. A few thousand years ago, actually. Now here we are, much different scenario, much different world we live in, at least aesthetically. What can we learn from this? It's kind of like when you go to the doctor, you know? Like when you go to the doctor, you're reminded of what your health could be. You're also seeing, you see how bad it actually is, right? And most importantly, though, what do you get when you go to the doctor? You get what needs to change. If a good doctor will tell you, here's what needs to change. Here's what needs to be done to pursue a healthy life. You know what the Ten Commandments does for us in a modern world today? Exactly that. The Ten Commandments show us what we should be. They, they tell us what we really are. They show us what we really need. But you know what else they do? And I love this, and we're going to get to that at the end, but they show us what we can be right now. But let's back up first. The first thing the Ten Commandments show us, they show us what we should be. The kind of people that God created us to be, right? You know, when you look at a design or a blueprint for a construction project, that design, that, that blueprint is showing you a perfect plan. If all the math has been done correctly, all the engineering, whatever engineering things you engineers do, right? If all that's been done accurately and correctly, what you have is a plan, and that plan leads to what would be a perfect building or a perfect road or a perfect playground, perhaps, right? It shows you what it would be, what would be perfect, what would be ideal if you follow the plan. If you follow the instruction, so to speak. You see, remember last week, we saw God tell Israel that they would be his people in this world, a people with a purpose. What did God tell them? He said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God gives them a blueprint. He gives them this construction plan, if you will, known as the Ten Commandments, so that if if the Israelites actually obey these rules, then you know what? They will be a perfect society. 
They will be a perfect people who have fully devoted themselves to God and fully devoted themselves to one another. It's a perfect blueprint. There's no holes in this. So these commandments then, do you understand, they're not arbitrary. These aren't just random rules God came up with. It makes sense that the God of all creation would have established ground rules for how to govern how we live. Because he has a design for our lives. Think of the natural world, right? It's the same thing. God designed the natural world to operate according to the rules that he established. Gravity, right? Try to break that, okay? Some of us can break it a little better than others, right? Jump, how high can you jump? I don't know, right? Gravity, human anatomy. The body works a particular way. Chemicals, the way they work together, right? Etc. all these things. So God has a design for how the natural world works. He has a design for how the spiritual world works, how it should work, how it should operate so we can flourish in our love for God and in our societies. That's the design here. Love God, love people, and it's going to be all right. But is it that easy? Matthew chapter 22 Verses 36 through 40, we see Jesus summarizing the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? Jesus himself summarized Ten Commandments, and really more than that, really all 613 laws in the Old Testament. He boiled them down to two. And I love how Jesus makes things simple for us to understand. In the New Testament age, he boils it down to two commands that we need to be concerned about. Look at this. Matthew 22, someone said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, which is the, what's the most important one? Out of all the 613 rules that we see in the Old Testament for the Israelites to obey, they're in the wilderness. Teacher Jesus, which one is the most important? Which one should I be concerned about? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Isn't that awesome? Jesus just summarized the whole Old Testament in just these couple of verses, these two commands. Love God, love people. So therefore, the Ten Commandments show us today the two most important commands that we can obey as Jesus' followers. This is who we should be. This is what we should be. We should be a people, a church, a followers of Jesus who look to him and him alone for our sustenance, for our identity, for our approval and our acceptance and say, we follow Jesus because we know that out of all the things in this world that we could give ourselves to and pledge allegiance to and give our hearts and attach ourselves to, no, 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 we attach ourselves to Christ. Him and Him alone, exclusively, because we know and we believe that He is good enough for us and that what He has for us is better than anything else this world could even dare to give us. We love God. We promote a world where humanity rightly puts God at the center. The other thing that we should be are people who love our neighbors as ourselves. Not just the person next to you in your neighborhood or your apartment complex, but any human life, any other neighbor on this planet called Earth. 
We should be a people of Jesus followers who promote a world where humanity flourishes and society flourishes through love toward each other, not hate, not injustice, but service, putting the interest of others before our own as Christ did for us. This is who we should be. This is how God created the world to function from the very beginning. But we have corrupted God's beautiful design. And that's the second thing that the Ten Commandments show us. Not only do we see the ideal, what we should be, the Ten Commandments show us, number two, what we really are. You know, you may have woke up this morning, walked into the bathroom, looked in the mirror, turned on the light, looked in the mirror and said, oh, right? Maybe you did. I don't know. Maybe you said, ooh, I don't know. I don't know what you said. Okay? For me, it was more the ugh. All right? <laughs> and here's the thing. You know what? Man, I hate to say it, but our mirrors don't lie, do they? Right? Mirrors don't lie. You see your truest self. That's exactly how the Ten Commandments function. They show you your truest self. You look into the Ten Commandments and they look right back at you. You read them and they read you. And they speak to your heart and say, this is it. This is the problem. This is where you're failing. You see, the Ten Commandments show us how sinful we actually are. They expose our failures. They show us that we don't pursue God's good and holy design for our lives. They remind us that we don't love God, do we? We don't love others as we should. We can't keep these commands. We can't do it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's the law that teaches us what sin is. How would we know? Think about that. How would you know what sin is if you didn't have the law of God, if we didn't have the word of God? God is gracious enough to tell us what sin is, what his design for this world really is, what we should be, but he's also gracious in telling us who we really are. The Ten Commandments show us, yes, the behaviors that reveal our sin, but you know that Jesus, he took things to a deeper level when he taught on the Ten Commandments. You may be thinking, I know, right? I mean, I get it. Hey, sure, I've lied when I was a kid or something like that. I sold some candy. But I haven't broken all the commandments. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I've never murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Well, listen to the way Jesus explains the real root issue who we really are based on the Ten Commandments. Look at this. This is amazing. Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 21 and 22, look what he says. He teaches two of the Ten Commandments. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Here we go. Verse 22. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire? Now you may think, that seems harsh. If I call someone a fool or if I have anger, right? If there's anger in my heart towards somebody in this world that I'm held liable to the hell of fire? Jesus continues down in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already 
committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, we don't, we don't like to hear this because as long as we look at the explicit behaviors, maybe we can check off some of the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, I haven't done that. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Your problem is a lot worse than you think. Your problem goes much deeper than this. It's an issue of your heart. Your heart is not right with God. Your heart is not right with others. Jesus is making it clear. It's a heart issue before it's a behavioral issue. The behaviors that you struggle with and the little actions that you do that aren't in line with God's design, those are surface level. And they're a big deal. Don't get me wrong. But they're pointing down to a bigger deal. The surface level behaviors that we struggle with, whatever it may be, lust, anger, whatever it is, is pointing to this deeper issue. That deep down in our hearts, we cannot be content with what God has given us. We cannot be content with God himself. And so what do we do? We reach for more, and so that leads us to anger. It leads us to lust. It leads us to stealing. It leads us to lying. Surface-level behaviors, always pointing deeper to a bigger problem in our hearts. There's an amazing example that we see in Luke chapter 18. Look at this. Same thing. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, Jesus says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, the man says back to Jesus, oh yeah, I've kept all those, I'm good. Right, all these I have kept from my youth. Yeah, Lord, I learned the Ten Commandments when I was a kid. And I haven't done any of those things. I'm a good person. Verse 21, and he said, or I'm sorry, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay, all right, buddy, right? One thing then, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You see, the, you see what Jesus is doing? He's pointing to the deeper problem. Jesus doesn't command everyone to sell all their possessions. He's just telling this one guy in this moment, hey, listen, I know what you really worship, and it's not me. And so I'm going to point out to you right now the biggest problem in your heart. You love money, and you love wealth, and you love stuff more than you love me and more than you love anyone else. And until you, can, until you can get rid of that, until you can confess that sin, you won't be able to follow me. You see, Jesus is asking us, do we really, really love God with all of our lives? With every area of our life? The Ten Commandments are not a set of rules just to keep so you can check them off and confirm that I'm a pretty good person. No, they show us how deep our sin goes. Our hearts are not right with the Lord. And the consequence of this, the consequence of this, is held, being held liable to the judgment of the hell of fire. That's what Jesus said about even just anger in your heart will lead to a separation from God. Because as the holy God comes down on Mount Sinai before these people, 
What he's telling them is, you cannot live in my presence unless you are perfect. You cannot live in my presence unless you are completely holy. Now, here are the rules for you to live a completely holy life. Are you going to be able to do it? And the answer is an emphatic no. They expose our guilt. They reveal that we are separated from God as a humanity, as a race, as a people. We are separated from God. That in and of itself is an act of God's grace showing us how bad we are. Even though you may not like to hear that, that is God's love and grace telling you what you really need. And that's the third thing we see. The third thing the Ten Commandments show us, oh yeah, they show us what we should be and they show us how far from that we really are, but they also show us what we really need. You know, Christmas is right around the corner. You saw the holiday schedule coming up, right? You know the song about Santa Claus, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. Which, by the way, isn't that kind of weird? <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Right? Well, guess what? That is not how God operates. Okay? But a lot of us, a lot of us kind of live our lives as if, as if God is like Santa, right? As if, well, let's just see how good I can be, you know? And then, hey, when I die and I stand before God, maybe my good will outweigh my bad. I know they've got those big scales up there and they're going to put all the good things I've ever done on one side and all the bad things I've ever done on one side. And I just hope I've been good enough. You know, I remember those 10 commandments that preacher Andrew talked about that one time and hey, here they are. See, a lot of us, I'm not kidding. I mean, that is, the, that is the default human understanding of salvation. We want to be good enough, you know? Like, that's the funny thing about it. We do want to prove that we're good enough. We don't want to have to rely on anyone else. And so we want to be able to stand before God one day and say, look how good I was. Now, would you please let me into heaven? I mean, isn't that what I deserve? That's what we want and wish would happen. Because it's humiliating for it not to happen, isn't it? But maybe humiliation is what we need. No matter how hard we try, the gospel teaches us the opposite of that song we sing. No matter how hard we try, the gospel teaches us that we will never be good enough. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Your good will not outweigh your bad, no matter how good you think you are. You see, we don't just need help. We don't just need somebody to set some more stuff on one side of the scale. We don't need someone to just kind of push us across the finish line or carry us halfway. We need complete replacement. The scales must be thrown away. Did you know that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to earth? He lived the life that you and I could not live. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life to God the Father, to the Word of God, to the laws of God. Didn't break a single one. As only he could do, fully God and fully man, representing us. What Adam could not do in the garden, what Moses could not do in the wilderness, what Israel could not do in the wilderness. God, God sent his son the new Israel, 
to earth to do what Israel failed to do, to do what I failed to do. You see, we need someone to replace all of our mess. Not just, not just wish it away, not just carry us across the finish line. We need a replacement, a full replacement, to give us their record in place of ours. Romans 3 tells us, verses 21 through 24, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, listen to this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you want to summarize the gospel, you could say it this way. It's Jesus in my place. That's it. It's not Jesus plus I'm going to try to be a good person. It's not Jesus plus I'm just going to beat myself up about all the sins I've ever committed and just wallow in self-pity. That will make me feel better and maybe God will have pity on me. It's none of that. It's Jesus in my place completely, fully, it is finished, period. And there's nothing we can do. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said himself, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did what Israel failed to do, what you and I failed to do. So when we stop trusting our own goodness or our own effort to somehow save us, when we stop trusting ourselves to be our own Savior and instead admit our sinfulness before God and turn to Jesus to be everything that we can never be, then, in faith, His obedience replaces your disobedience. It's His pure motivations in place of my corruption it's his death as a payment for my sinful heart. In Exodus 20, verse 21, the people stood far off. It says the people stood far off from God while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people in their sin could not even approach a holy God. But then what does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 tells us? Later on, many thousands of years later, when Jesus comes and does this in our place, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were, were, who were once, were, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You get to approach a holy God. And that glorious truth means everything for what you can be now. So that brings us to the last and final point, and I am excited about this one because you know what? This is what we can be. If you are a child of God and you have experienced the salvation that I just described, in other words, you've put your faith and your trust not in yourself, not in the things of this world, but in Jesus alone, then you know what you can be today? Listen to this. At the end of this, in Exodus 20, verse 20, what does it say? It says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Why? That you may not sin. You see, when you do have Jesus in your place, when you have repented of your sin and turned to him in faith, 
It doesn't make you perfect. It doesn't mean that you're not going to ever mess up and make mistakes and sin again. No, you will because we live in a broken world and we're still broken ourselves, but we are redeemed by grace. You are not under the law. You are under God's grace and that gives you the ability to live for God, really, practically, every day of your life. You didn't have that ability before. I didn't have that ability before. We couldn't obey. Jesus, in your place, gives you the chance, the opportunity, more so the power. Second Corinthians, Paul describes it so well. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Listen to this. Not on tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments were written, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. In Jesus, we are not under the Old Testament law. We're not under the Old Covenant no longer. We are under this new covenant of Christ. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We now have the ability to live for God with the Holy Spirit in us. We can pursue God's design for us and this world. You don't have to look to any other God to give you what only God can give you. You don't have to take advantage of others to try to manipulate situations to benefit yourself. Now we can follow Jesus' example and live for someone besides ourselves in every little moment. We don't have to live selfishly. You know what you can do? You can be faithful to your spouse. You can tell the truth and live an honest and transparent life before others. You can honor the Lord with your time and truly center your priorities and your money around His kingdom. You can be content in what God has given you and stop looking at what everybody else has and thinking that if I only had that, I'd be happy. No. In Christ, you can you can conquer these things. Do you see it? It's rest, isn't it? The marker, the sign of this covenant was the Sabbath. Resting in God's provision. In the new covenant, it's resting in the provision of Jesus. That's the, that's the marker, being assured of his approval. It's the marker of a Christian life, resting that Christ's approval of you and his eternal inheritance for you is enough. Being secure in your identity as God's child, that is practical for your everyday life and the decisions that you make when you leave this building today and tomorrow and the next. The Spirit leads us to love God with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. Last scripture we're going to look at today is from 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. 
for I am holy. Listen, church, the most beautiful thing you need to walk away from this today is this. When God came down to Mount Sinai to the Israelites, that was a powerful moment. And he said, be holy, right? That's, that's the communication that they're receiving from God. Be holy as God is holy. But they were lacking the one major piece of that puzzle that you and I are not lacking. It's Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus did what needed to be done so that we can look at a holy God and he can say, be holy as I am holy. And we can respond and say, yes, Lord, please help us to do that. Yes, Lord, help me to love God, love you with all my heart, mind, and soul. Lord, help me to love the people around me as I love myself. Obedience is how you enjoy your salvation. Have you ever thought about that? Do you enjoy being a child of God? Do you enjoy your salvation? If you're not, it's probably a disobedience issue. Seeking the Lord with all your heart and confessing the sin in your life that keeps you from loving him above all things. It sounds funny. It's a humbling experience, but that is what brings joy. Knowing that you are living a pure life for the Lord according to the design he created for you. We can't do that alone, but in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit of God in us, we can pursue that end. It's his power working in you that gives you the ability. My question, two questions for you right now as we close. Number one, what does your love for God look like right now in your life? What does your love for God really look like? Do people see that you have prioritized your life around living for the mission of God to building his kingdom in this world? Or would someone look at your life and really not even be able to know that you are a Christian because there's really just not much evidence other than the fact you're here? Is it being demonstrated in your priorities? Is it evident in your affections and your desires? What does your love for God look like right now? And the second question that we see, what does your love for people look like right now? Because here's the thing, the more you love God, and the more you appreciate his grace, you know what's going to come out of you? Not selfishness. Because you will be so grateful for what you've been given, how can you not extend it to others? It's God's love that helps us love others. So you got to get the first one right. But the second one, what does your love for others look like right now? Are you investing in others? Are you being patient with people? Are you sharing the gospel with your lost friends and your neighbors? As we look at the Ten Commandments, let them point us to the new and better covenant, the better Moses, Jesus himself. May we rest in his salvation and security, not in our ability to obey a set of rules, but in the one who has already obeyed them for us. May the Lord Jesus himself be our motivation for living every single day. If you're here this morning and maybe you look at the Ten Commandments and you say, I do see who I really am, and I don't like that. If that's you today, then I encourage you to confess your sin. And if you've never trusted Jesus to be everything you could never be, if you have been trusting your own record this whole time, today is the day of salvation. Trust that the Lord Jesus' record is good enough. It's perfect. Confess your sin to him. Cry out to God. 
to save you. Just confess and tell Jesus, Lord, I can't do this. I can't be perfect. I can't be holy. Lord, I want your perfection in my place. I want your record credited to mine. And I believe and I trust that you are the son of God. You died in my place. You rose from the grave to give me the power to live for you. Lord, I want that. 